0: Welcome to Interrevolutionary Radio with your host, Beth Green. This is James Maynard, your co-host. Today's topic, do we have to choose between compassion and common sense? Hell no! Meet Jakarta Imani, who demonstrates the opposite. In California, the state spends $7,500 to educate a student, and more than $200,000 to imprison a child. We're spending people's tax dollars to harm children, says Jakarta Imani, who launched the movement to cut the incarceration rate by 50% nationwide. Is reforming our criminal justice-injustice system compassion or common sense? What about other areas of social reform? Aren't compassion and common sense the same? Jakarta has personal experience of the devastating impact of the war on drugs on his hometown, Oakland, And he's done something about it. He has also fought for green jobs and led campaigns to pass progressive legislation. And yet he has kept his compassion. In fact, now he is heading Ignite, a program dedicated to training and supporting spiritually rooted activists. This guy knows what he's talking about. He can bring us information and a profound understanding of what people need to make real change. We don't have to choose between compassion and common sense. And now, here's Beth.
1: Welcome everybody. I'm very excited to be uh, interviewing Jakarta. I'm so interested in so many of the things that he's worked on and uh, I've been following this um, Cut 50 movement also for months and we've really wanted to have somebody on to talk about it because it's appalling really. Uh, The amount of uh, incarceration in this nation and the stupid things that we're doing with people. And that's only one example of the stupid things that we do collectively. So there's a lot that I am looking forward to learning from Jakarta. But... Before we have that privilege, and by the way, I just met him two seconds ago uh, because uh, we can thank our producer, Christine, for having set up this interview. And before we actually get into that interview, we are going to have our news of the inner revolution. Now, for those of you who've just tuned in for the first time, what we mean by the inner revolution is a movement of consciousness for us to start realizing that we really are one and that we have to start behaving that way like yeah we're sharing a planet you know you can you pollute you're polluted and that's emotionally spiritually on every level and uh, the second thing oneness and then the second thing is accountability it actually makes a difference what we do and we're accountable for what we do. And the third is mutual support where we support the whole and the whole supports us. And we see a lot of people in the world are taking this on. They don't call it the inner revolution necessarily. They may not use the same words, but they're hearing the same drum. And that's what's so exciting. So, James, we always start with the news of the inner revolution. Some of it is actually the news of the counter-revolution today but some some of it is really encouraging we've got to be encouraged to keep going so take it away james
0: okay guess what donald trump really is the great unifier listen to this story from the la times of march the 12th how black latino and muslim college students organized to stop trump's rally in chicago When black, Muslim, and Latino student activists at the University of Illinois Chicago heard that Donald Trump was planning a rally on campus, they came together to protest it. The groups included the Black Student Union, the Muslim Student Union, and the Fearless Undocumented Association, which advocates for immigrants in the country illegally. Other local and national activism groups also got involved, including some local labor organizations, Black Lives Matter, and MoveOn.org. They went online. Within days, thousands of people had liked a Facebook page called Stop Trump Chicago. Tens of thousands added their names to a MoveOn.org petition calling on the school to cancel the rally. They all had one thing in common, said Cassandra Robledo, a second year student who helped organize the protest. We felt so strongly that Donald Trump and his bigotry and racism wasn't welcome here. The result? The student's large demonstration at Trump's rally Friday night led the Republican presidential candidate to abruptly cancel his planned appearance. Beth, your thoughts?
1: Well, this is such a great story. I mean, I I don't know if I think that protesters should go into the Trump rallies, but really it's kind of not the point. The point really is that we are all waking up to our oneness. You know, we launched something called the Campaign to Unite All movements several months ago. And we're very slowly getting signatures, but we're looking for organizations to sign on. We've gotten a lot more individuals. But I think it's so important for organizations, if you're fighting for black rights or you're fighting for Latino rights or women's rights or gay rights or uh, Muslim rights or whatever it is, that it's all the same fight. Labor rights... You know, we get all divided up and we get all obsessed with our own fight. It's like, oh, my fight is what really matters. And we forget that we're all facing the same kind of oppression. And if we look at these systemic issues, we see that we're all struggling against the same kind of, um, it's not just bigotry. It's also the income inequality. It's the abuse of power. Uh, that we see in our world. And so, you know, we've been uh, asking people to start getting beyond our own egoic concerns, even if those egoic concerns are social, like we women or we whatever. You know, I've I've seen this all my life since I've been in the political realm, which was a very long time. And so here it is, and I'm looking at it and I'm saying, when are we all ever going to get it? And then, <laughs> then I see that article and I'm thinking, the son of a gun, that Donald Trump is doing it again. He's bringing people together, like people are waking up. And I love to hear that story because that is the inner revolution. Even more than fighting for ourselves is when we get that we have to fight for one another because we're all one. Okay, James.
0: And now, here's another story about the power of protest. Again, people may or may not like the strident stance of Black Lives Matter, but this organization is having an impact. Here's a story from Vox.com, March the 16th. Two prosecutors' races you didn't hear about were big wins for Black Lives Matter. There were two little-known but stunning upsets during the Super Tuesday, the 2nd, elections on March 15th. Anita Alvarez lost her bid for reelection for state's attorney of Cook County, Illinois, and Tim McGinty lost his reelection bid for county prosecutor in Cayuga County Beach. I'm sorry, Cayuga County. Both of the incumbents lost in part because the Black Lives Matter movement criticized them for mishandling and neglecting high-profile police shooting cases over the past years. Alvarez drew a serious challenge to her re-election bid after she failed for more than a year to prosecute the Chicago police officer who, in October 2014, shot and killed 17-year-old Laquan McDonald. Only after a court forced authorities in November 2015 to release a video of the shooting did Alvarez, facing serious protests, decide to file charges. McGinty, meanwhile, was challenged after he didn't land criminal charges against the Cleveland police officer who in 2014 shot and killed 12-year-old Tamir Rice. Or get a conviction against a Cleveland police officer who in 2012 shot and killed Timothy Russell and Melissa Williams. Alvarez also had an unusually tough-on-crime record for a Democrat to the point that the Cook County Board president described her as one of the people who had to be dragged kicking and screaming through this criminal justice reform process. Prosecutors like Alvarez and McGuinty play a key role in perpetrating, perpetuating the kind of mass incarceration that criminal justice reformers now want to end. But if the justice system is to really change, America will likely need more upsets like those in Cook and Cuyahoga counties. The evidence shows prosecutors have leveraged their power to perpetuate mass incarceration. States could limit prosecutors' powers. They could simply decriminalize or remove felony penalties from some offenses, therefore eliminating prosecutors' ability to file charges at all. They could also eliminate mandatory minimum sentences. Beth?
1: Well, you know, again, it's insane. Uh, We're going to be asking Jakarta a little bit later in the show to talk about mass incarceration. But um, it's such a great example also that the fight that the Black Lives Matter movement has made is really for everyone because it has brought so much more attention to the criminal justice system. And whether you're black, white, Latino, gay, straight, I mean, there is... Way, way, way too much criminalization of people and not enough help for them. And so it's, you know, when we, even the, though the whole focus that we could see was about black people, it really is going to benefit everybody. And to start changing the culture, our culture of violence, not only the violence that we see in our communities, but the violence that we approve of, I should say, that we, that we condone in our authorities. So, yes, bless you. Great, great news. There's movement.
0: And next we have the news item. Uh, those of you who have been following our show are well aware of the needless violence in football and the corrupt denial we've been hearing from the NFL for years. Well, we have a story for you that is actually a groundbreaker. It's from CNN March 16th. The NFL acknowledges CTE link with football. Now what?
1: Shocking, isn't that shocking?
0: Well, they finally admitted Admit it.
1: Admitted, it, amazing.
0: For the first time, the National Football League has publicly acknowledged a connection between football and chronic traumatic encephalopathy, the brain disorder better known as CTE. Jeff Miller, the NFL's Senior Vice President of Health and Safety Policy, met with the U.S. House Committee on Energy and Commerce on Monday and responded yes to this question. Do you think there is a link between football and degenerative brain disorders like CTE? The NFL stated, the comments made by Jeff Miller yesterday accurately reflect the view of the NFL. Following Miller's comments Monday, attorney Stephen Molo, who represents some former players who opted out of the concussion lawsuit settlement, says that he hopes that this new NFL stance will affect all former players and members from the settlement class, and that the NFL's recent admission will prompt it to provide the benefits and care that retired players suffering with CTE deserve. Beth?
1: Well, and you know, when they start paying out, they make changes. Uh, <laughs> you know, that yes. seems to be the only thing that anybody listens to. But we are so happy to see this. You know, we've been covering this story as well uh, quite a lot. We had, uh, you know, an interview with Steve Almond about football in October, and we've talked about football over and over and over and the insanity of football, a game where you know that they even admit that 30% of their players are going to have uh, degenerative brain disease. They admit this, you know, and and why they're not shut down, I don't know. C- common sense, a little bit of common sense. But again, we are so into violence in our society. We it's amazing, but this is really big and when I read that story, I thought was this an oops moment for this guy, for this vice president? Did he accidentally say that there was a connection? <laughs> but no, evidently, no. He, he
0: felt he had to because there was too much scientific, scientific evidence. Too
1: much. I mean, there it's 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 blowing up, and you see, it's just like those these other stories we're talking about about uh, mass incarceration or about you know racism in the. Uh, You know, institutionalized racism through the police or any of these stories we're talking about today, we are seeing that while we're simultaneously seeing this huge upsurge in expressed racism, we're also seeing a lot of progress and awareness in so many areas that have been going on for decades decades, and they're only now breaking open. And in fact, our final story that James is going to tell you is is just awful. It's not an inner revolutionary story that we should go rah-rah-rah about, but it's something which we should know about. But the good news is that, again, here's a story that's been happening for decades, but we've been la 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 yeah, you know, and now we're waking up. So take it away, James.
0: Okay. uh, This story is from Chris, one of our listeners, from the USA Today, dated March the 17th. That's Today. We've been following the crisis of lead in drinking water, which was uncovered in Flint, Michigan, and here's another scary story. Lead taints drinking water in hundreds of schools and daycares across the USA. Some 350 water systems that failed lead tests in recent years provide drinking water to schools and child care centers. Jameson Rich, a seven-year-old who drinks water from the school water fountains at his school in Ithaca, New York, tested at more than twice. It's the average level of lead for young children. Jamison School is one of hundreds where children were exposed to water containing excessive amounts of an element doctors agree is unsafe at any level. Environmental Protection Agency data showed about 350 schools and daycare centers failed lead tests a total of about 470 times from 2012 through 2015. Excessive lead levels have been found in almost 2,000 water systems across all 50 states, says Nicole Rich, Jameson's mother. It's a scary thing. Nobody expects to have this in their schools. Who knows how big the problem actually is? Researchers say it could be very, very big. But at this point, it's impossible to know how big, because the federal government requires only about 10% of the nation's schools and a tiny fraction of daycares, the 8,225 facilities that run their own water systems, to test for lead at all. Jana limbrini du a Virginia Tech researcher who studies lead in water nationally, states, there's a regulatory black hole when it comes to schools and daycare centers. In some ways, it's an official endorsement of exposure to lead and large-scale health harms that go undetected. Beth?
1: Well, what can you say? You know, we, um, uh, you know, Mike Papantonio was on our show, I, I don't remember, maybe two, three weeks ago, and he's one of the uh, lawyers who's really gone out, out after the big corporations who have knowingly poisoned us. You know, he's one of the lawyers who went after DuPont about all the poisoning of the water and the earth uh, through their chemicals, just dumping stuff, and the thousands and thousands of people that they have killed or damaged and here we have the lead industry which knowingly promoted lead in the pipes. And look how the fact that lead, you know, impacts our children's ability to think and learn. And you know, Jakarta is going to be talking about the mass incarceration, but you know, how can you educate children when they're hungry? How can you educate children when they have lead poisoning? You know, how can we have I don't know. It's, it's crazy. Every, it, when I listen to the Republican debate, I, you would think that the problem is the government and all this regulation. I don't know. That's not the way it looks to me. I'm not saying that the government isn't the problem. But it seems to me that it, you know, unadulterated corporate greed with, with people, corporations, who get away with murder, who are never accountable who always look at the numbers instead of the the pain that they're causing is part of what's wrong with our world today and again, at least we are waking up. So with that happy note... (laughs) I'd like to introduce you to our guest, Jakarta Imani, and he has so much to share about his own life, which I want to know everything about, and uh, the struggles that he's been a part of, and how he's kept his cool, because I don't keep my cool a lot of times. I mean, I just get mad, and uh, you know, I believe in spirituality, and I believe in oneness, and I try to treat everybody with oneness, but when I see people who are consciously hurting others, it just Turns my stomach, just turns my stomach. So, welcome, Jakarta, to our show.
2: Thank you for having me. Glad to be here.
1: So, tell us a little bit about your own background, which I think is always critical to who we become. It's like, how did you become the man you are today, both an activist and a spiritual activist?
0: Yeah,
2: you know, um, well, you know, uh, obviously through the grace of God and the and the love and support of my. Uh, my family and the people who came before me, um, both in the movement and um, in, in, in my life. But, you know, I'm born and raised in Oakland and grew up during the height of the drug war. And um, got to see firsthand what the drug war did to people in my community uh, and people in my own family. Um, you know, I grew up at a time where... Um, if, if when I got home from school, my mother wasn't home, I could go over to Miss Pat's house. And if Miss Pat wasn't there, I could go to Beverly's. And if Beverly wasn't home, I could go over to Jim and Casey's. And, you know, I, it, it really was this, this, this neighborhood where, um, you know, if, if somebody saw me doing something when I, uh, that I wasn't supposed to be doing, not only would they talk to me, but by the time I made it home, my mother <laughs> would have heard and we would have to have a conversation about it. Uh, and during yeah. the course of that, that time, you know, I, uh, um crack hit and and crack really did change my my community and my neighborhood. Now uh,
1: when was that mm-hmm. specifically?
2: Uh the, the early 80s. Uh, mid 80s is really when crack became like a really big thing. Mm-hmm. And it both changed my community in in ways of like there were these young men in particular who had more money than I'd ever seen, you know. Um some of your listeners will remember when only sort of doctors had pagers. But these kids were the first people that I ever <laughs> saw with pagers and, 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 and cell phones when they still looked like a brick mm. in real life and, and you know, Mercedes Benz's. And um, and then there were people who began to use drugs who, you know, mothers would leave their kids at home and folks would be gone for days and people would steal from, you know, their own uh, family members and friends and um, and that and was a real tragedy.
1: Now, uh, I'd like to understand that a little bit better. Now, was Crack at that time it was mostly a quote minorities problem a black problem.
2: Well, you know, I mean, I think um, cocaine has always been an American problem. Yes. Uh, how people use cocaine, um, like how many people use many drugs, is is somewhat classed and somewhat raced. And um, crack cocaine, crack made cocaine very cheap um, and very accessible. Uh, the other thing it did is it, it made it's a. Um, from what i understand a very a very short but intense high, mm-hmm. um, and so then people uh, want to keep doing it you know want to keep using and go on binges mm-hmm. um, and so you know this this uh, along with what 's been documented by you know the the CIA bringing drugs into the United States um, through l a um, is that and, true yeah you know the, the 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 San Jose Mercury News did an incredible expose. Uh, probably about 15 years ago now. Tell us. How, Tell
1: us about that.
2: Um, you know, your, 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 your listeners can, can find it online, but they, there was a, a San Jose Mercury News uh, investigative reporter who did a whole thing figuring out how in the, um, uh, in the sort of support of the Contras.
1: Uh, oh, yeah.
2: CIA um, smuggled guns into Latin America. Yes. And those mm-hmm. same planes that brought guns to Latin America... Quite literally, brought cocaine to Los Angeles, um, and um, and that, and that and those drugs were distributed throughout the United States, in particular into African American and other low-income communities, um, and uh, coincided with with uh, with uh, the rise of uh, crack cocaine use in the United States.
1: Now, that was uh, under uh, President Reagan. That's right, uh, and uh, with the good old days that people are. <laughs> I don't know what people think, you know, but that those were some of the, quote, good old days. This was yeah. happening.
2: This, you know, for, for, I, mean, I think for, for, for people of color, for women, uh, for queer folks, we don't, we do, we, when people say the good old days, we get nervous. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. You know, there, 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 there was, you know, um, as far as I can tell, being a student of history, there was no better time to be black in America than today. Um, so when people, and, and there was no, you know... Um, there was no better time to be Irish in America. There was no better time to be Latino in America. There's no better time to be lesbian, transgender, bisexual in America. Um, and so this notion of the good old days um, is, is, not, is not really true. Um, what it was was the yes. days that we didn't talk about exploitation, marginalization, and exclusion. Yes. Uh, you know, that, that even in those days, it was not great to be a worker in America. No. No. Um, you know, with the destruction of, of unions, which um, Ronald Reagan helped continue to move forward, um, yes. and, and the lowering and the stagnation of uh, wages in this country, right? Yes. Um,
1: Absolutely.
2: So, Absolutely. This, this notion of getting back to the good old days is always, um, I always have to want to ask for, for who.
1: <laughs> I, I so agree with you. In fact, I, the latest video that I did, I do a, a video once a month that I put on my uh, t- channel, uh, Beth Green TV on YouTube. And this one was called a Politics is a Blood Sport and Where is Our Leadership? And in it, I t- actually take it w- f- about the good old days and go from group to group to group to group. What was good about the good old days? And the only thing that I could think of is the illusion that some white men have that it was better for them then (laughs) because nobody else was on the move. And I think that so much of what's happening in our politics today is that people actually thought, and I agree with you because what it meant was that, oh yeah, you had one of these great coal mining jobs, you know, where you got black lung disease or you worked in factories where they never, never actually took care of people's uh, occupational health and safety. I mean, I I worked in those factories. I was in all of these places. I know what the good old days wasn't, and uh, so. But there is this illusion that you know, for white, so many white workers, especially men. That they're losing something that they had and what it is, it t- what, how I put it, it is, is that I think it, it, that we were the bullies and we thought we could bully people, like we could bully the people in Nicaragua, you know, and that men could bully their wives and, the, the, you know, people could bully their kids and whites could bully blacks and straights could bully, you know, and that was it. You know, we got well, to be bullies, but, you know, the bully is usually being bullied by somebody.
2: Right. Well, you know, I I would frame it slightly differently. Um, but, but 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 I'd love to looking, hear what you have yeah, to say. Yeah, using some of the same facts. I think that what people have lost is an is a is an aspiration. Um, that there that that there used to be a moment where people thought, if I just apply myself, if I just follow the rules and work hard, I'll get ahead. And what's happened, you know, is that the rules of the game have changed. Um, and they've become more apparent that that's not the way it works. Yeah. And at the same time, there has been these um, radical shifts in our, in, our, in our economy and in our society um, where there were, you know, things uh, where, you know, we didn't have much, but at least um, we had our manhood, whatever that might mean. Right. And now we don't have that because of the feminist movement, which has restructured what it means to be a man, which yeah. is not, you know, which has began to limit the exploitation and mistreatment of women. uh, I'll remind us that uh, the the number one reason for women to visit uh, the emergency room is still violence from their partner. And so it hasn't disappeared. Um, But it's been limited. Um, It's, you know, where white people used to be able to say, we don't have much, but at least we're white. Yeah. Uh, And the marginalization and exclusion of people of color um, has obviously not erased, given the stories you you shared before I came on, but it's also beginning to be limited and challenged. Yeah. And so what it means to be white, uh, b- built on white supremacy is limited, um, and so on down the line. And so the, these, these notions that at least that we had some aspiration to, you know, that we could, if we followed the rules and, and, and worked hard, get somewhere, ha- I think have been exploded. Um, and a huge part of that has been, you know, tectonic global shifts in capitalism. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, uh, for a number of years, there was, you know... Y- 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 in the fifties and sixties and this dissipated in the early seventies, but us capital agreed to split um, or to share, I don't want to even say split share some of the profits of exploitation of the global South with us workers. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. um, the, you know, the extraction of cheap steel, the extraction of cheap labor, um, raw material from Latin America, Asia, and Africa um, were shared with us workers. And so the, there was in the, in the, fifties uh, and sixties an unprecedented growth in um and wages in the United States because of that that agreement right with through labor labor won some sharing of profits of u s corporations and in the late sixties and early seventies and throughout the seventies and eighties that was rolled back and so u s workers experienced real economic decline at the same time of rise of social movements right and so yeah. in people's mind they 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 um they connected those two things together.
0: <laughs> that,
1: oh, yes.
2: That, right? And so there was this yeah. sort of aspiration for class achievement that, that, that really did evaporate at the same time as social movements began to flower. Um, and, those, and, and, and I think that the white working class um, in, in its mind or some elements of it combine those two things and say, aha, we, we once were great, quote yeah. unquote, and we lost that because of the rise of the rest, right? Yeah. Um, and, and don't identify that the same people, i.e. Donald Trump and his class and family, who were wealthy in the last you know, episode,
1: yeah. uh, are,
2: are still the people who are, are wealthy in this episode. And it's not black people. It's not women. It's not Latinos. It's not Asians. It's not queer folks. It's, right? um, it's the same people who were, who were rich you know, 150 years ago, by and large, with some, you know, some, some slight exclusions, are still the same people who are rich today. Um, and, and are super rich today. And so I think, I think that, uh, one of the things that is, that's sad about our society is that, um, because we don't really talk about race, we don't talk about the right, we don't talk about the white working class and we don't talk to the white working class by and large. That's right. And so Donald Trump is doing it in a way that's, um, profoundly dangerous, um, and going to have huge consequences, whether he wins or loses, for this country going forward and all the people of this country going forward. Um, but he is talking to the white working class um, explicitly, or I should say really implicitly, but in a way that is much clearer than anyone else. And, and they're responding. Um, and they're responding because they have a deep and profound sense of anxiety about their future. Um, and they're not alone in that anxiety. Um, working class people of color, immigrants, immigrants. Um, Women in this country, by and large, um, queer people in this country, by and large, have had that same sense of anxiety mm-hmm. about our future. Um, and uh, didn't expect, you know, uh, anyone to come riding to our rescue, expected to do it on our own. Um, and I think that a, a wedge is being driven, but continued to be dri- driven uh, uh, between us in working to actually do something about the people who, who, who actually benefit from... Um, that's the economic, social, and political situation we find ourselves in.
1: That's oppressing uh, all of us.
2: That's true. True story. True story, indeed. And so, you know, the work that uh, I did at the Ella Baker Center um, uh, was trying to expose the way that um, the criminal justice system how it how it directly impacts, um, in particular, Black people, but increasingly Latino people, um, particularly in the South and the Southwest, as the, as they become the the socio political targets of um exclusion at the ballot box um how that spending um how that reorganizing uh the, the apparatus of government uh to prosecute persecute and exclude black people actually costs all of our children and in, in my home state california um you know we were uh you know we had crown jewels of education we had an incredible uh, public education system with california uh uh uh, uh universities uh, people may be familiar with UC Berkeley or, or UCLA, um, but we have a number of UC schools. And in, uh, when my grandmother moved to California, you could put your kids in, um, you know, K through 12 education. They could graduate high school and get a world-class education at one of the UCs if they were a good student. If they were an okay student, they could go to one of the state schools. And yeah. if they were an average student, they could go to community college and work their way to a state school or, or a state university. Um, and in my lifetime, you know, California built uh, 20 prisons in one state and one university. Um, and so we've, we went from being a leader in education to near the bottom of the barrel um, because we decided that it was a better use of resources than to educate um, you know, uh, white students or, or, heaven forbid, Latino students, which are now the majority <laughs> of students in the state, um, that we would spend an exponential amount of money locking up um, and targeting African-American people who, who make up, you know, I think like 12% of, not even 12, like 7% of the population in the state of California, right? Yeah. Uh, but something like 40% of the people incarcerated in California. Um, and mostly for drug crimes. And what we know is that uh, uh, black people and white people use drugs at the same rate, but are incarcerated at radically different rates. Um, yeah. And so it, what, I, what I saw growing up was that just that thing. Um, due to a strange twist of fate of uh, having a learning disability, dyslexia, and my mother believing that uh, the schools in the Oakland Hills, which is uh, uh, the nicer part of town and historically the more white part of town, would have better schools uh, for kids with dyslexia. And so I was bused into the Oakland Hills in elementary and went to junior high and, and, and high school there as well. And so I got to be friends with, with white kids and affluent kids and actually got to see that they were suffering from many of the same issues. Um, in their family, whether it was drug abuse or, or family violence. Mm. But, but the responses of our government were profoundly and radically different. And so while my neighborhood had the you know, task force, um, which if you if from Oakland of a certain age, you will remember, are these guys, who, the police officers who rode around these black jumpsuits and black cars, I'm going to ride with their door slightly ajar so they could jump out and pounce on unsuspecting teenagers uh, <laughs> who they suspected as drug dealers. Um, that was the way we dealt with drugs in my neighborhood. The way we dealt with drugs in the Oakland Hills, um, uh, where you know, uh, John Hancock's great-great-grandson I went to school with, the granddaughter of the gentleman who invented the squeegee, and Joe Morgan's <laughs> granddaughter. I went to school with those kind of people.
1: Yeah. Wow. <laughs>
2: um, and, and it wasn't, you know, uh, and there was drug addiction. There were people yeah. who were you know, buying and using some of the same drugs that they were using in my neighborhood. And those folks honestly got um, rehab. Um, their sister got, you know, quote unquote, a summer in Europe, right? Uh-huh. Uh, and not, you know, uh, uh, 10 to 15 um, years in prison. And so what, what I saw at a very young age was the racialization of the intervention the government was making that made everything worse. That made the drug trade more profitable and thus for um, uh, more, more attractive. That made the drug trade more violent. By uh, pursuing these little uh, street organizations from block to block, so it moved people off of their neighborhood corner to a, another neighborhood corner where they would get into conflicts with drug dealers. At the same time, the rise in the availability of, of guns in this country and automatic weapons and high capacity magazines um, uh, uh, that, that intensified and, and, and made the, the, the the drug war, uh, or the, the street war, more and more violent and more and more deadly. Um, and, w- you know, I first came to this work because I wanted to do something about it, and when, uh, when I came to the Ella Baker Center, I was impressed because I'd been told all my life that young people were the problem, and with the Ella Baker Center, under Van Jones' leadership, our founder, understood was that young people, um, that violence had existed in America long before these young people did. And so maybe they, that we had a part of the answer that we were close to it and that we could see something different. Um, and so started organizing young people as the resistance um, to not only the violence in our community, but to police, uh, police and state repression. Um, and I joined that team um, because uh, uh, I thought that, you know, I could make a difference and stayed there for 13 years, um, helped, you know, pioneer and advance the notion of green, green jobs, get, helping pass the first federal green jobs act that was signed into law by uh, then George W. Bush that put mm, $50 million into green jobs training and pathways out of, into the green economy for uh, displaced workers and $10 million for people with barriers to employment, formerly incarcerated, folks with a, a GED or less. Um, and uh, it was an incredible, incredible time. Um, now,
1: before you hmm. got into Ella Baker and you were able to do so many positive things, having seen the difference between... The way that the African American communities were being dealt with around drugs, and having experienced that firsthand. And by the way, I had similar experiences where I got to live with the ruling elite, and uh, that I wasn't from it. I was from a poor working class family. Uh, You know, it's like you wake up and you say, "Oh my God, this isn't some kind of communist propaganda. This is for real." Mm -hmm. Um, Did did you get bitter? Did you ever, you know, early before you got into doing some kind of positive, how did you feel?
2: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I mean, you know, so, so um, I wouldn't say bitter, um, but, but I would say that there are, there, there were certainly days that I was, um, I was so angry, I was unsure sure what to do. Yeah. And I, still, and I still have those days.
1: Oh my God, um, I was hoping you did, and I'm not the only one.
2: <laughs> I still have those days, and you know. And I think that um, you know. Uh, I would say there's a, there, there's there's a, there's a few things. One is that I, I um, growing up in Oakland is a profound blessing. You know, I, I am just by be, being from Oakland and being black, I am the inheritor of a certain legacy in terms of um, the Black Power movement, the uh, Black Freedom Movement, and the South, which most people refer to as the Civil Rights Movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know the the Black abolitionist movement. There's there's in some ways um, being a, a child of Oakland, a son of Oakland, gives me is that that's part of my direct inheritance. And so you know my mother, although she was not she's not a, a deeply political person, grew up in the '60s and '70s and went to school with the black black members of the Black Panther Party. Mm-hmm. Um, You you uh, don't
1: know this about me, Jakarta, but I'm of the age that I was active in the '60s and '70s. Yeah. So I was part of all that. In fact, I got active in the '50s. -hmm. So um, you know, I I have a lot of experience. I know what you're talking about. So this is like, yeah, like this is your mother's generation. I guess that makes I could be your mother. Uh, (laughs) But (laughs) carry on. So
2: (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. So so there's a way in which you know, so that that I. Um growing up was introduced to youth groups um, and had mentors who had been in the work, you know, and who and who had mentors who had been in the work in the forties and the fifties and the thirties and the twenties, right? And so oh, that there was wow. a way in which that I, I I was I inherited this sense and this legacy of 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 struggle that I understood. That I wasn't the first one mm. um, to stand in the breach. That mm-hmm. there have been people who come before me mm-hmm. and that I could lean on them and learn from them. Mm. Um, and, you know, um, yeah. And, sure. and, uh, you know and, and, and sadly, I got to realize that they're, 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 there's elders in the movement, and then there's just olders in the movie. People just happen <laughs> to be like like older than you, but they actually don't know more than you uh, and, 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 that, and that's a hard lesson to learn to be able to distinguish those people, but right. uh, I hope to grow myself into being an elder one day and not just an older, but um, for the time being i i 'll take older um, but so, so 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 that meant that you know um, there are moments where I get just dis- dis- discouraged and angry and frustrated um. And that there were people I could turn to who would say, you know, um, here's what we did. Here's, wh- here's what you have to remember. Um, mm-hmm. and, um, and because of the way that I came up in, as an inheritor of that, um, sometimes it wasn't the words, it was the songs, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Sure. Um,
2: it was, you know, singing We Shall Overcome. It was singing Down by the Riverside. It was I was uh,
1: just thinking that song. Yeah. Just, so, a, just like a tree that's standing by the water.
2: Yeah. You shall
1: not be moved.
2: There That's is. another
1: there we go, is another one. We just yeah, it gives us courage, doesn't it?
2: It gives Pete us Pete
1: Seeger. Pete Seeger was everywhere when I was, you know, coming up in the movement. It's that every one time you went to a demonstration you knew Pete Seeger was gonna be there and William Kunstler was gonna bail you out. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, you was in the right. Well, you was on the right part of the movement then. I don't know. I don't, <laughs> I don't know where you were. I, I can't say that. Every, I, I've been to a, a, a protest where Pete Seeger was. I knew that Pete Seeger was going to be there. Well, I was back. Uh. In,
1: I, I was. I grew up in New York City. Okay. So yeah. I was. I was an East Coast uh, radical. You well, know?
2: and 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 that's inherited a different legacy in the movement. And there are Very. people I know who grew up in the South similarly, right? And people I know who yeah. grew up in the Midwest and in the uh, uh, similarly who inherited pieces of this movement and different a different legacy but similarly right that we have these traditions that let us know that we are not alone in the work and that we you know um and that that yeah hmm, it's so interesting
1: you're saying that okay let me just say one thing and then come back to what it reminds you of is that see when i when i came up there was no movement really the the uh Black freedom movement in the South was the only thing that I could see, except for the ban the bomb movement, which I was part of in the North. So I did not have elders who were part of the struggle. Uh, I didn't see any of that. And we kind of like created everything ourselves. And I have to say it was a big mess. But, (laughs) uh, (laughs) and i would be very honest about that. And, you know, and the women's movement hadn't even started yet. And I, I, you know, I was one of the... And not that I was an important person. I just mean that I was one of the founders of that because we were trying to do an anti-war movement and the men wouldn't let us do anything but bring them coffee. So, you know, there was a lot of struggle in the movement itself. And I didn't feel like, no, I didn't feel like I had, uh, you know, elders to rely on who came up where I came from. But there were people... Who there was a sense of movement. uh, And that's, you know, and that there were others. There were hundreds of thousands of people in the street eventually, not in the beginning. In the beginning, we were alone. Those of us who were fighting were fighting alone. But then uh, there was this swell, and that is so encouraging because even if you missed all of that, guys, if you're out there listening to this show, What you have is you have an incredible time where there's more people in action than I've ever seen ever before. Because it's not just the black movement or just Cesar Chavez or just uh, whatever, you know, uh, It's uh, not just Bernie Sanders. It's like so many groups have been mobilized and who are in action, who are speaking, not only here but across the world. And uh, we need to take some courage from that. But anyway, I interrupted you. What were you going to share? No, I, I mean, I think,
2: you know, you, you bring up why study important. Because, you know, um, you all c- continued on the women's movement that had begun in this country, um, you know, several decades before, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, the, and the workers' movement. Um uh, you know, I think that you know that what what has to often be addressed is you know d- during the thirties in this country there was a systematic uh and, and very effective attempt to dismantle uh, progressive oh, social movements in the United states absolutely.
1: that was you know absolutely. And, and so, uh,
2: that that history is 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 often not known
1: oh but yeah, one we, of the things we, that we can yeah.
2: discover you know when we look yes. back and realize that there were these movements for workers' rights these movements for um Women's rights, right? These movements for um, whether it was the suffrage movement or or movements before, right? That that,
1: thats right.
2: Right. That that. um,
1: Nobody handed us anything on a silver platter. Women in the in the United States didn't even have the vote until 1920, and I was born in 1925. Right. You know, I mean, in 1925. I mean, 1945. If I said 25, I was deluded. (laughs) I meant 1945, and and I saw. And we've talked about this because we've talked about capitalism and democracy and how they get mixed up and how they are not the same. And, and you know, and I saw the uh, decimation of the workers' movement through the anti-communism that, mm-hmm. that was happening in the 40s and in the 50s. And I saw the House Un-American Activities Committee working. And I saw McCarthy working. And that's why I actually became a radical when I was nine years old because mm. I saw that. And I thought, these people are crazy. And it's so true. It's, it's painful. It's a painful part of our history that we need to reclaim our right to protest and reclaim our right to force social movements and to throw off this, just the stereotyping, oh, well, you're a socialist or a communist, that makes you bad. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, just do what you're told. And believe it, what the capitalists tell you and just, just shut up. Yeah. And the 50s, I grew up in the 50s, especially women were supposed to shut up.
2: Right, right. <laughs> speak in, yeah, speak, uh, don't speak until spoken to. That's yeah. right. <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I'd like to ask a question here. Uh, uh, coming up to the present uh, time, I understand that you're doing a training and uh, program for spiritually rooted activists mm-hmm. called Ignite. Could you tell us more, something about that? Thank, that you, sounds James. Very interesting. Thank
1: you, James, for getting us back on track before we run out of time. And I'm having too good a time listening to
0: Jakarta
2: <laughs> well, and
1: having a fun conversation.
2: This just means y'all have to have me back on, you know. When, oh, when, yeah. That's, that's all. Sure. Sure. But, yeah, so, so, so after years of being at Della Baker Center and, and really growing in my, uh, uh, my capacity to organize, I had this, you know, mm, this, this, this sort of moment of um, posing myself what I really believed, yeah. you know, um, and, what I, and, and what I fundamentally believe. I mean, you, you've all alluded to to some extent is um, that we are all inextricably linked. Yeah, And that when, um, that, 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 the, you know, the human family is only one, that when you, um, when you, when you, when you're able to like look at this, this, this mad, beautiful, precious world that we live in, um, and on, um, it's, you know, we, we are, we are, we are, we're, we're in it and of it. And, and that what we do to one part of it, eventually we do to it all. And I started to get that in terms of, um, in terms of social policy, in terms of economic policy, um, in terms of uh, uh, the environment. Um, and, and, it, and it dovetailed profoundly with my, my own spiritual beliefs. And, and what I realized at a certain point was that my, my politics, because I'd spent about 25 years... Uh, working to develop and refine my sort of political analysis and my ability to do organizing and advocacy, um, and legislative advocacy and electoral, you know, work. Um, but that, in terms of my, you know, um, uh, my my spirituality and my ability to, to 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 be a spiritual organizer and a leader, was weak um, and and radically underdeveloped. And um, and I decided to that I wanted to, to deepen that. Um, and to, and to lean into that space and, um, was blessed to get a fellowship to come here uh, to Pacific School of Religion, um, to do this Changemakers Fellowship, uh, which was happening where they were giving, you know, uh, activists a year to study this intersection of spirituality and social change. At the same time, they were uh, launching the forerunner to the Ignite Institute, um, the Center for Spiritual and Social Transformation, and you know, and I, and I you know, be, being a good organizer, often to help with the launch, you know, there's going to be uh-huh. a symposium where we brought out our Brother Cornell West and Sister Yuni Silbert from Delancey Street, and it's going to be a whole day looking at this intersection of spirituality and social change yeah. along issues of the economy, along issues of racial justice and uh, environmental justice, and and um, In that process, was invited to apply to be the the, the director of the Ignite Institute and saw, you know, and felt wholly unprepared uh, and still in most days and in most ways still (laughs) uh, understand that, you know, the divine call uh, 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 prepares the call and doesn't call the prepared. (laughs) Uh, So, uh, so I've sort of stepped into this, you know, um, realizing that uh, this is, this is, this is my calling to be. Um, a teacher in this space connecting um, our deep ancient wisdom that, that many of our faith traditions and communities, and each of us holds a piece of internally yeah. uh, where we know the truth um, and connecting that to the, the change that we're trying to do in the external world, that personal transformation with that social transformation. Um, yeah. And so the Ignite Institute has been about that work now for the last two years, um, and uh, uh, we're actually doing a program this, this spring, next month, we're doing the new story of work, where we're working with um, a whole host of really interesting and powerful um, activists and scholars um, to have this conversation, you know, um, about politics, spirituality and labor, really about how do we sh- shape a, 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 an economy that is uh, profoundly and deeply moral and ethical and consistent with life on the planet as opposed to undermining life on the planet
1: how true how true well i have to tell you jikada since we there, we have a lot of similarities i had a spiritual awakening in 1978 mm. after having been a radical you know most of my life and um, I, just, I had just burnt out, and I was an atheist at the time because I studied Marxism, and I was very angry, and I was part of every movement you could think of, and uh, I had a spiritual awakening, and I became a counselor because I, I developed, all of a sudden, I had an inner voice. And it was telling me what to do, and I became a counselor and all of that. But in the 1990s, I just felt drawn, and I tried to start something called the Spiritual Activist Movement, it was like 1992. But we didn't have the internet, and I didn't have any backing. I didn't know what to do with it or where to go with it, and it was SAM, right, Spiritual Activist Movement, and um, that is what I tried to do. I have founded it, by the way, in the early 80s, I founded a spiritual community, (laughs) but I have been trying to move that spiritual community into activism ever since, and that's been a long time, and we have finally transformed into the innerrevolution.org, and it's exactly what you're talking about, because frankly, to me... You know, if you're just meditating on your navel and Mm. you aren't taking action, you don't know really what spirituality is about Mm. because we are one. And if if someone hurts my neighbor, they're hurting me. And so I can't have a personal life. In fact, God told me years and years ago that there is no personal salvation because we're not individuals. Mm. And you know, too many spiritual people are all wrapped up in their enlightenment, you know, and uh, it's silly because if we don't exist as individuals, who are we enlightening anyway? Mm. Mm. So, um, it's I had this completely different view of consciousness as being collective, yeah. and um, you know, I wrote some books about it, and I've, I've been fighting with God about it for many years, but <laughs> <laughs> here we are, you know, and then I hear you, and it's so refreshing. Because this is something I've been working on and was very alone in for so many decades of people not, they were either political or they were spiritual. And there was all this stuff about our spiritualities, about how to manifest money. And I thought, are they crazy? Yep, yep. You know, are they crazy? Is this really what this is about? Is this why we are on this planet? And so I love, I love this. And, you know, I, I think... My God, maybe I'm an elder. But, uh, you know, it's wonderful to see th- what you're doing, and I would love to help. I mean, we do, I do trainings. I, I call it consciousness training because oh. I'm very intuitive. I have this incredible psychic ability, which I use to help people to overcome their shit because I can see it. I can help them. I can see what it is. And so um, what I see then is this wonderful transformation that you have gone through makes yeah. me so hopeful for our world, because it's not good enough to just hate and be angry. No. We need to have something positive, we need to unite around our oneness, and somehow or other, we need to reach people, yeah. people with, our, with consciousness. And I'm, it's mm-hmm. very exciting. And having been in the labor movement, and the women's movement and all that, you know I see, I, I know what you're talking about, and I, I think it's tremendous.
2: That's well, beautiful. I mean, we, 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 we right there then are, you know, we're family in the struggle. We uh, are. Yeah, indeed, indeed. I mean, So, so uh, I just want to make sure your listeners know it's Ignite at PSR, A-T-P-S-R uh, dot com. And uh, the conference is going to be this April um, 15th and 16th here at our campus in, in, in Berkeley. And we'd love to have folks. And, you know, we're going to be having ongoing programs. Um, and I would love to, you know, partner with you guys to maybe sponsor something, and or we can do this. I, I love this frame of inner revolution, because oh, you that, do, because yeah, <laughs> that's
1: what it is. It's that's everything. Right. We have to change everything. Yeah, and yeah. St- including ourselves.
2: Yeah, and there, and there is, you know, I mean, we're talking about this sort of, is this, this, this going back and this reclaiming, and, you know, like, I think that there, for me, there is this ancient wisdom. There is this thing that we've been cultivating uh, throughout human history, this, this uh, connection with the divine that yes. is found. Um, but there is also a way to update it, because, you know, a, a lot of our religious traditions have some, some BS and some hurtful stuff in there, too. And so we're not just saying, you know, you need to hold your nose and get over that, um, we really think we need to do the work of, of, of moving through that stuff as well and, and holding ourselves to account and task with that. Um, yes. Uh, yes. So it's not just uh, sort of throw our head in the sand, but at the same time, it's not throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Uh,
1: I, I, am a, I agree with you. In fact, one of the things we've talked about is that we need, yes, thanks, James. One of the things we've talked about is the need for a new spirituality, a spirituality that trains people for action that, doesn't, that is non hierarchical that yeah. doesn't have god on top and us at the bottom because i mean I, you know i have a whole thing about the ego and i think that you know the division between god and humanity is the number one problem that we start with that mm-hmm. you know we are all one we are all one and it's very exciting i would love to do something with you i personally uh, i'm chronically ill and have been since i'm 15 so it's mm-hmm. hard for me to travel but have computer can get there yeah
2: uh-huh. <laughs> You know Canada I mean? is our friend, so we and can we
1: absolutely, can absolutely. If there's any way, we let's talk about that uh, afterwards. You know, we'll have to let them off uh, so that we can we can hang up. But let's talk to each other and see if there's because it seems like we're just really trying to do the same thing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And Jeez. James, we better hurry up, and you got to tell us about what we're doing next week.
0: Okay. Coming up next week, International Women's Day came and went. Did you notice? Let's talk about the day, the powerful women who birthed it, and the struggle we continue to make for women's rights. Holidays associated with women usually portray our sweet side. Mothers yeah. and Valentine's Day are about love and roses. But there's another side to women, a side of steel and struggle, and that's the real origin of International Women's Day. In 1907, women workers in New York organized demonstrations demanding better pay shorter working hours, and the right to join a union. In 1909, garment workers in New York went on strike for 13 weeks in what was called the rising of the 20,000. These struggles inspired socialist Clara Zetkin to propose International Working Women's Day to honor working-class women's struggles and to draw connections between the fight for women's, uh, the fight for workers' power and the struggle against women's oppression. Are we there? Not hardly. Women are still fighting inequality and abuse around the world. Most of us know nothing about this day, so let's honor our foremothers. But let's also talk about the condition of women today and our continuing struggles all over the world. Join us and call in. And now for a final word.
1: Well, I just have to thank you so much, Jakarta. I have loved talking to you. I could talk with you forever. And let's get together uh, after the show and see if we can help each other to help everyone. God bless.
0: Thank you for joining us for this edition of Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and James Maynard. The next episode will broadcast live next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And don't forget Revolutionary TV on voiceamerica.tv. Think outside the box and join us.